Well, there we all are again. After one of the maddest weeks that I can remember in Sweden. I don't know if it affected you. You could have been just rambling around doing your thing. Going to work, picking up the kids, dropping off the kids. Then sometimes picking up the same kids again. But uh, the last week, ladies and gentlemen, has been absolute chaos, right? Now, if you don't really consume news media that kind of thing yeah, you'll probably still have noticed that uh, last week was the week when sweden after 200 years of neutrality and 73 years of the social democrats being against it finally decided to join nato when I mean, i'm not making this lovely podcast for you lovely people i'm out charging around the place for news agencies and for eamon dunphy's podcast and for pat kenny and for other international and Irish media outlets, and boy Jesus, have they ever had me jumping through hoops for the last few days. Uh, It started, I don't know if you will have seen on my other social media feeds, I was off rambling around the island of Gotland. Now, it's about a three-hour ferry journey off the Swedish coast, and I went over there to see, it was basically, you know, it's the canary in the coal mine, it's it's right in the middle of the Baltic Sea there. And uh, if you ask any Swede, they'll tell you the joke about, oh, you know, imagine if we woke up and uh, and Gotland, the, the Russian, as they always call him, the Russian was on Gotland. And uh, for many years, that was actually a threat during the Cold War. There was a huge worry that that would be what happened. So um, it was a, quite a heavily militarised place once upon a time. And I was there and visited, going around the museums, and they were showing me these big guns that had actually been taken off battleships, right? And when they were decommissioned then, they were stuck into these big concrete plinths and pointed out at the sea in case the Russian ever did come, but the Russian never came. And at the end of the Cold War then, uh, they decided, right, let's take away all these things. And basically, Gotland was, you know, to all intents and purposes, the regiment was disbanded and it was entirely demilitarized. And then on the 24th of February, the whole world went to shit when Vladimir Putin and the boys decided they were going to invade Ukraine. Now, people on Gotland will tell you they never should have done it, they never should have taken away all the security, etc., etc. You know, so it's over there filming. That was like two weeks ago, whatever. And then it came back. And this was always going to happen. Like, as soon as the invasion happened, and Vladimir Putin has said, look, at, I'm against NATO expansion. I don't want NATO on my doorstep. And, you know, you can think what you like about that. I can fully understand the chap in some ways, even if the, the invasion of Ukraine is an absolutely horrific event that never should have happened and can't be condoned at all and has to be condemned. So then the Swedes and the Fizz just went, I got a second here. If uh, Ukraine was attacked, I wasn't in NATO, and I had no way to defend itself. We better not make the same mistake. So ever since then, they've been in a hurry to get their ducks in a row. And it's not like... When you see an ad that's pushed through your letterbox and it says, oh, you know, join this gym. For the first uh, three months, it's like 199 crowds. You know, the process is a little bit longer. It's not just sending in your official number or filling in a form, you know. So they had to go through the whole process of various different political parties, especially governing parties, getting their parties behind it and then going to parliaments and that kind of thing. And then they had to make their application. And that application was given in to NATO in Brussels on last Wednesday morning at 7 o'clock Central European time, if I remember. And before that then, you know, it was just running around the streets. And with news, you know, to tell you a little bit how the sausage is made, with news, there's loads of different things you have to do, right? You have to interview polit- politicians. You have to interview uh, powerful figures. You have to interview experts. But you also have to go out on the street and interview the general public, which can either be the most lovely, giving, validating experience you've ever done, or it can be a complete and utter fucking nightmare, right? So um, I went out in the street on Sunday, which was the day that the Social Democrats were deciding that they were going to abandon over 70 years of uh, opposition to NATO. I was talking to people, and some people were great. And there were some really deep conversations until the memory card of me camera decided, no, I'm not going to tell you what's on me at all. Nope, 
don't, uh, not have a no, if you've ever sort of been to a wedding and taken a whole bunch of photographs and come home and go, I can't open these things, that's basically what happened with my TV camera, right? Nightmare. Run around then. Monday was more of the same. Uh, it was basically sort of chasing politicians and, and doing stuff and out on the streets and filming street scenes, all the stuff you see on the news. Uh, you know, people walking down Drottning Gotham or wandering around um, Triangle and Malmo. All those things are sort of colour that you put in there. So then on Tuesday, there was a state visit by the, the Finnish president. And that's when it all started to come together. And, you know, we come from, you know, in inverted commas, a republic, right? It's not much a republic. It doesn't work as well as a republic should, but it's a republic all the same. So to see the Finnish president and the king coming up the avenue across the bridge there uh, outside the the parliament and all the pomp and ceremony and the soldiers or conscripts or whatever they were lined up outside that kind of it's all faintly ridiculous right but it was a state visit from finland and that kind of thing you know democratically elected man and the undemocratically appointed king and they did their thing and they went into the palace and i was walking through the palace i've never seen as many overstuffed armchairs in my life with nobody allowed to sit in the lads there has to be something wrong with that so that was done then, and then from there it was over to the Parliament, and the Finnish President spoke to the Parliament, and I was left thinking of our good friend Michelle Cotter. You would have heard Michelle a little while ago back on the uh, on the Irish and Sweden podcast when we went over to Helsinki actually to play Gaelic football, because uh, the Finnish President gave his speech in Swedish, and I'd say her Finnish is probably better than his Swedish. No, lovely man, etc., etc., but just spoke so slowly and so carefully and that kind of thing. And every time he was left uh, fish, fishing for a word, Sauli Ninnisto is his name, uh, I kind of remember thinking, geez, Michelle, Michelle would be much better at that. So, you know, you never know. We might even uh, elect Michelle the president of Sweden, the first president of Sweden, first Irish-born president of Sweden there. But, yeah, so that was what it was. Um, I did reach out to the Irish Embassy, and at the moment, they're, like, you know, like most politicians around the world are foreign ministers and that, you know, there's a very sort of straight bat being played on these things, right? What Sweden and, and Finland do is uh, is entirely up to them. I think uh, Ireland is relatively supportive of that. I'm not going to say, you know, that that's that nobody at the embassy told me that, you know, but it's not, you know, it's not appropriate for them to comment on these things at this particular time. It's a very sensitive situation. So the reason I'm telling you all, all about this at the start of this week's Irish and Sweden podcast is just keep an eye out now, right? Because what's going to happen here is, I wouldn't imagine from the people I've speaking to the last week, Sweden's not going to be invaded, lads, okay? So you can take the sandbags away from the door and, you know, all the spam that, uh, not the email spam now, but the, the processed ham that you have in tins and all the big jerry cans of water that you're storing in your water that kind of thing. don't worry about that that's it's not gonna be if sweden's not gonna be invaded not even if you're living in gotland for the time being but what you will see is an awful lot of diplomatic stuff an awful lot of statements being made some of these statements will be true some of these statements won't be true some of these statements will be of uh, you know people exaggerating things just sort of when negotiations actually begin that they get what they actually want right one of the situations now is to do with turkey turkey has called sweden and finland guest houses for terrorism and they're you know that's basically them coming out hard if this is a boxing match they're coming out swinging right now are they going to allow Sweden and Finland to join NATO? Probably, because the Americans will probably tell them, well, you have to, and that'll be the end of that. But they're setting out their stall. And in this process, we're going to see an awful lot of stuff. And unfortunately, what happens in, in the media, and what politicians do in the media, and diplomats sometimes do in the media, is that if you can sow a seed of fear, it focuses the mind very sharply, and it gets people to agree to, to things, maybe without considering them in their totality, right? So it's just a little... I'm just pointing out to you to be a little bit careful for the sake of your own mental health and for the sake of your own sense of well-being and security that, you know, people be rattling sabres now and that. 
take it all with a pinch of salt, right? We actually live in a very, very safe world. The chances of Russia invading, they might do, but they're very, very, very slim at the moment, you know? So when you listen to all these things, huge pinch of salt, lads, as if you were making coddle, right? Huge pinch of salt will make everything better and tastier and easier to digest as you go along. Now, if I have the chance, I will get somebody on the podcast, uh, an academic or an expert or somebody who can explain what this whole thing means, right? But no more than what I'm saying to you here, I didn't want to rush into that. I haven't had the time over the last week to find somebody who's reasonable and say, okay, talk to this person. I don't want to get, you know, a social democrat politician on because they'll just do exactly what I've just been saying. They'll be saying, well, this is a good idea because, no, 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 let's have a chat. Let's just sort of, you know get to the bones of this and see what the story is and see what we can work out of that. So we will get to that in due course about what that means for Irish people, for EU citizens, for people like ourselves in Sweden. So that that will be on its way in there. But for the time being, just take everything with a pinch of salt. Sit sit quietly in the boat, as the Swedes tend to say, and all of this will work itself out. Um, and as I say, no sandbags at the door. Don't bother filling the, uh, the water and hiding it in the garage or in the, the shed or in the wardrobe just yet, you know. Now, on this week's podcast is uh, two people, right? One is the wonderful Yulia Shelson. Now, rather than having her explain it, I'm going to explain it to her, right? Yulia has been, um, for years, I can't even remember how long, I'll have to ask her, uh, she has been a member of the Stockholm Gales. She came to us as a sort of a volleyball player. I knew her let me see, her sister's boyfriend is a Norwegian footballer called Carl Thieveson, and he's both the, the nicest bloke you'll ever meet, but also one of the best soccer players I've ever played with, or against. He's just a fantastic guy, really nice. And his partner, Johanna, is Julia's sister. Now, Julia turned up and started, never played Gaelic football before, Swedish girl from way down in Smallland, and she started playing Gaelic football and just turned out to be brilliant, right? I love to see people like Julia come into the club. She has been part of the committee uh, for better or worse. She's really done her thing, and she also scored the winning goal in injury time a few years ago, Scarpnex Sportfeld, uh, to win the Nordic Championship for the Stockholm Gales women. And it was just, to, to this day, it's still to me, one of the greatest things that's ever happened in the club, right? Because here you have somebody coming in from the outside, they, you know, who doesn't really have a relationship to, to Croke Park or to the games the way we have. She has something completely new and she has created something. She has created her own space and claimed her own space in this. But when we got down to Copenhagen there a few weeks ago, uh, there was no sign of her. I was going, Jesus, that's unusual. Now, she had been working hard in the committee in the last couple of years, that kind of thing. So I thought, oh, maybe she's taking a break, you know? And, um, I can't remember who it was. Oh, I asked Emma Ridge. Yeah, well, Emma was moving there last week. And I said, Emma, where's Yulia this, this one? I haven't seen her in ages. And she went, no, no, she's not training this year because she's going to climb Kilimanjaro in the summer. And I was like, all right, I just have to get her on the podcast to find out about this, right? Because it's one thing scoring last-minute goals to win a championship for the Gales. But it's a hell of another thing entirely to go climbing one of the biggest mountains in the world. And what Emma said was that, oh, you know, she didn't want to get injured before going climbing the, the, you know, Kilimanjaro. I went, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. A uh, little bit later on in the podcast, we're going to talk to Keith Begg. Now, Keith used to live here in Sweden, but he... Um, it's in one way it's a sad story in one way it's a story that makes me very angry but Keith was very active during the COVID-19 pandemic here about uh, disinformation and he was very much an op an opponent of the Swedish COVID-19 strategy right where there was no lockdowns it was all pretty laissez-faire you'll remember uh, if you were here and Keith spoke out about these things and he spoke out he criticized journalists and that's one of those things that you know and I'm, I know a journalist myself journalists don't like being criticized lads they don't like being you know when they have things pointed out to them when they haven't found a balance in what they're doing you know when they're not being fair about what they're doing 
and Keith started to criticise people and people turned on him and they started to, to threaten him uh, with the result that Keith left Sweden. Okay, people were sort of posting notes through his door threatening him and telling him to get out and this kind of thing. So we'll, we'll catch up with Keith. He's moved back to Dublin and I'm delighted to say he's never been happier but he'll get to tell his story a little bit later on. But uh, before we do that, let's have a little word with Yulia and uh, what she has in our sights. It's not Gaelic football. It's not the, t- the two-point white post and the black spot on the crossbar. It's Kilimanjaro, lads. Here's Yulia. Because it seems like you've been here forever. Uh, I probably have been. Uh, I think I joined back in 2011. Yeah. No, yeah, it's been a good few years. And how did you wind up there? Because somewhere along the line, because we've known each other for years as well, I've forgotten the whole origin story. So let me hear your version of it first, and then I'll try and fill in what I remember. Yeah, uh, I actually think Johanna, my sister, brought me. Uh, so she went to one of the trainings. I think just the end of the season. And then I started coming just like the next season as well. I remember, I think my first proper training, it was just me uh, and two other girls and Donald. And it was pissing rain and we were out in Yadet. And it was, I, I was thinking back on it and I was like, how did I end up coming back? Because that was not, <laughs> you know, the perfect training. Well, you know but, what, if you can get through that, and especially with Donald doing it, if you can get through that, you can probably get through pretty much anything, right? Yeah, it's, it's been good. Like the, the last few years when it's like training's been cancelled because it's been a rain or, you know, we're less than 10 girls. I'm like, yeah, well, remember the good old days? We were happy if we were five, you know? Yeah, excellent. Because you're now getting like me in your old age going, I remember when there was three of us yeah. here in the pistons around, man. That's a, that's, a, that's a, It's great to have people in the club like that. What was it that, that kept you coming back, Julia? Because like you say, in the beginning, it was difficult. We had mm-hmm. one season, you might have, you know, 10 girls and the next season you might have seven girls, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't be the same, you know, seven as were part of the 10 last mm-hmm. year. So how did you manage to keep the motivation up? Uh, I just think it's such a fun sport. Like I always disliked soccer like I've never been a soccer person I always played in a bandy or floorball when I was younger I always loved watching like handball and ice hockey and I think that's what I love about Gaelic that it's so I like, guess a very quick sport so that really spoke to me and then there's a community we had like yes girls were flying uh, coming in and leaving and everything but we still had some people that were there from year after year and then I mean now we have a completely new team I just recently found a photo on Facebook from you know seven years ago and I looked at it and none of us are playing anymore mm. uh, which is a bit sad but it's also what I love about the club here that it's so welcoming to everyone and it's like if you if you come here for a semester you know of being at university you're still welcome to join it's not like you have to commit to play for years to come mm. and I think that's that always getting that new blood but also having people like myself or and other people being like the core of the club I think that's so important and that's what made it such a great community to be part of as well it was a sort of uh, and I mean this in the best possible way right there was a sort of a separation happened a few years ago right where the girls seemed to have this really really strong bond off the field and you know you'd be in each other's houses you go out to mm-hmm. dinner you go to concerts you go on holidays together and that do you still talk to a lot of the girls that you played football with over the years are you still in contact with many of those girls who don't play anymore 
unfortunately, not that many. Uh, I do mostly have contact with girls that have played like the last couple, two, three years, I'd say, mm -hmm. uh, which is a bit unfortunate. It would be fun to have like a gathering of all the old gang, like uh, to have people back. But I know a lot of people have kids now and families, and of course, it's harder as well to organize things and to come to training and things like that. So it is, it gets trickier, of course. I, in a way it's exactly sad I was just when you were talking there I was thinking of Anna Speedy Farnlund yeah. who came in great soccer player and if we hadn't been able to teach her I mean she played for Europe you know which is our county mm -hmm. team and that kind of fantastic player and every time she played anywhere people would be coming back to me going wow she's amazing you know and it, it's not you know we haven't lost touch with her completely but like you say it would be great to get everybody back again maybe mm -hmm. we'll try and do it for the Stockholm tournament in August um, my best memory of you for the Stockholm Gales was a couple of years ago at Scartmeck right last kick of the game was it against Malmo I think it was against Malmo I think it was Malmo yeah yeah I, like our greatest rivals of all time and you scored yeah. the goal that won the championship against them with the last kick of the game that's yeah. my favorite memory what's your favorite memory of your time playing with the team oh I think that is definitely one I remember being I was so tired and I was about to ask to get subbed off and then I was like no it can just be seconds left let's just you know dig deep uh and then I scored and the game was over. It was literally the last couple of seconds of the game. Uh, but I think my other favorite memory is uh, when we went to Vienna. Uh, so we went, I think that was just my second year playing or something. Mm. Uh, but we went like 10 of us uh, down to Vienna to play in the Euro. Uh, it was so much fun. It was just going there the whole weekend, being with the team, playing teams we didn't normally play. Uh, it was just like a little adventure and we had so much fun. Yeah. I think there. I remember seeing pictures of all sorts of ice creams and everything yeah. from the Sunday, you know, obviously not from the day of the tournament. And that was one of those things, like I say, where the girls really seem to get, you know, they really seem to click off the pitch mm -hmm. as well as on the pitch, you know. Yeah. When you look from the outside, now I know your sister and Carl, uh, her partner, they went to, to university in, in Edinburgh in Scotland. That's, you know, mm -hmm. so it's not like your family isn't aware of what goes on in the outside world. But as a Swede, when you look at the Stockholm Gales and then maybe you look at, you know, the local handball club where you're from in Smallland, what are the similarities? What are the differences there, do you think? Oh, tricky question. Uh, I think the difference is... Uh, and I feel, feel like we're just a lot more welcome in the in the Stockholm Gales than I would say. Like, I know you hear this a lot about Swedes, but I think we're a little bit like standoffish in the beginning, or can be. And then when you get to know us, we're very friendly and very nice and we'll be your friend forever kind of thing. But I think with the Irish community, it's very welcoming from the start. And it's always... Uh, you don't need to hesitate to like invite someone if you want to do something outside of training or if you want to grab a, a pint with someone or do anything. It's there was always will always be someone there. That won't be anything strange. Whereas I feel well, in the Swedish team, that could be a little bit. If you just want to meet a couple of people outside of training, it could be seen as a little bit more strange. Yeah, uh, and that's Whoa, slow I mean, down that's here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly and I think that's what I've appreciated because I I'm not from Stockholm so I moved here uh, a year or two before I started playing football so basically my whole friend circle here is from football I, I got to know a couple of people during university but and most of my friends are connected to to football uh, so that's how I also made friends moving here being new to Stockholm yeah. 
this is sort of music to my ears because it was the whole point of us setting up the thing and not just for Irish people, but for people like yourself as well. Um, one of the people that you got to know really, really well is Emma Ridge, who's been on this podcast yeah. in a number of times, right? Is she really as tough as she pretends to be? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, she has a soft heart, I would say. She's, she, the uh, she's, uh, she's very tough, but she's... Uh, uh, yeah, she's a she's a softie, I would say. Is she a softie on the field? Because we saw her, she was playing down in Copenhagen recently and she went mad against Berlin in the first half. She was kicking points like there was no tomorrow and she seemed to be very competitive. But she she seems to be more fun in games off the field than, uh, than when she's on it, is she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think she's... I, I'm very happy we're playing on the same team because I would not want to be against her <laughs> on the field. But, I mean, off the pitch, she's like... She would never hold anything against you to happen on the pitch. Like what happens on the pitch happens on the pitch. Mm. Afterwards, we're just here to have the crack and have fun. Like it's mm. that's the way she is, and I think that's why we all love her. Yeah, she's a fantastic person. Jeez, I can't even imagine yeah. the club without her. But come here, she was the one who told me. I was going, where the hell is Julia? I haven't seen Julia all season. Like what's happening? <laughs> And the next thing she comes out with, you know the way, you're sort of expecting somebody to say, oh, you know, maybe she might be expecting a child or, you know, she got a new job. But she went, no, no, Yulia's going to climb Kilimanjaro. And I was sitting in the car and I went, you what? <laughs> She's going to do what? Where did that idea come from? Uh, it was, like, I think I've had it for like 10 years. Uh, it was so ever since you met me, you've been going, I need to get up a fucking mountain <laughs> yeah. as far away as possible. As far away as possible you can. <laughs> No, but I heard an interview with a Swedish uh, adventurer called uh, Renata Klumska. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's, um, among other things, she's the first Swedish woman to climb uh, Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. uh, but she was talking about all these adventures she's done and she started talking about Kilimanjaro and how it's, like, if you look at all the highest mountains in the world, it's considered an easy mountain. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's more, it's not climbing like it would be for uh, Mount Everest. It's more hiking. Yeah. And I love hiking. Yeah, so that time just I kind of clicked in my head like sometime I want to do that. I want to go to Kilimanjaro and actually just try it and see if I could do it. Because um, she was like, that was the way she put it was like anyone could do it. Like she's seen, you know, retired people or very young people do it. And it's like, it is possible. Uh, it's not not that you need to be a climber. You don't need to have oxygen tanks or anything like that. It's just walking. Uh, obviously, still altitude and everything, but easier if you compare to other mountains. Yeah, I, but then you look at the pictures of it, and you go, "Fucking hell, that's pretty big," you know. And of course, <laughs> the other thing that Emma said was that she was saying that you were worried. You didn't want to play football this year because you were worried about getting injured. So, mm -hmm. what's the physical preparation for something like that? Like Julia, do you just go out and hike your butt off every weekend now? Or? <laughs> uh, no, I probably should have done a bit more hiking actually. But I spend a lot of time in the gym, just doing you know deadlift, squats, everything uh, to be pretty much like. Body, lower, lower body exercises that's a lot of things what I've done and then doing a running for cardio uh, been going sometimes to uh, Hammerbacken to the ski slope we have here in Stockholm yeah. just walking up and down up and down uh, incredibly boring but got to be done Jesus and that's obviously you're sort of simulating okay we're going to be walking up this thing yeah. for hours um, and yeah. I've seen those guys I don't know if you've seen them the ploggers have you seen the, the people who run around picking no. up trash there so it's like you know no. like, 
så, 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 så plocka en Swedish is to pick mm. and yoga is to jog så, så plogger yeah. that's they were doing this a few years ago I think I did a TV story but anyway enough about them so how long do you have to so you know when you go right I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro how much time does it take for you to plan everything and get everything in place and then say okay on this date I'm going up that mountain I actually booked this back in 2018 well because uh, I was meant to go in 2020 uh, mm-hmm. but then obviously the pandemic happened so I had to first I pushed it to 2021 and then pushed it again to this year uh, so it's been a long time coming mm-hmm. uh, I've mainly the most preparation I've done like the last six months I'd say uh, yeah. just I have I'm going with a company so they've provided like a packing list and uh, training schedule that I haven't followed I've done my own but still uh, and like vaccinations that you need to have uh, and things like that and they yeah so it's like buying all the equipment I have a lot of it but still you know, I need to buy some of it it's a, it's a two page two and a half page list I think what, what are the most important <laughs> things on that would you say uh, I would <laughs> yeah it's actually on the list Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I really need to let it keep me mouth shut. <laughs> no, I think the most important thing is um, like rain gear and a proper. Now, luckily, I'm going in July, which is the driest month in Kilimanjaro, but they've had experience where they've been there and the whole week has just been raining. Yeah. So just having a proper rain clothes and like dry bags to pack everything in. and Because uh, if it's raining for a week, even if you pack it, you have like a rain cover for your backpack, everything is still going to get wet. Mm. So I think that's the most important thing, just keeping everything dry. Now, I'd imagine there's no Irish bar halfway up Kilimanjaro, nor will there be a four-star hotel, the like of which you would have stayed in with the Stockholm Gale. So is that it? Is it like literally put your tent on your back and off you go, Gail? Yeah, so we have, there's a crew going up with us. So when you go, at least the way I've understood it, when you go to Kilimanjaro, you have to have like Sherpas, with you um, and that's because like because it's a, a working opportunity for, for people in Tanzania uh, so they carry some of our gear so we would have like a day a backpack with like the, the things we need for the day and then they would carry uh, like the sleeping bag and uh, the things like that that we don't need for the day and then also all the tents and we will have a, a main tent where we have dinner and things like that so they will carry all of those things and um, so we don't have to and how long is it going to take you, you know, from the time you arrive at the foot of Kilimanjaro, how long does it take to get up to the top? Uh, we have eight days on the mountain, uh, but it's seven, I think it's seven up and then it's like one day to go down. Then just run, run like fuck to get down, do you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we, you go, we have an extra day just so we can acclimatize to the height as well. Yeah. So we don't need to go too fast. Because uh, obviously the height is, I've never been on high altitudes. So I don't know how I will react and I think it's the same for most people in the group. Um, so that would be like, we need to have that time. And then you walk, you walk up. Uh, so you go pretty high for like lunchtime and then you walk down a little bit lower to sleep. And that's how you acclimatize to it. Jeez, very clever. Never heard of that before. We were up at, uh, when I was at the, the Winter Olympics there in uh, in China, and we were up in the mountains there. We were really high up. And there was two things, right? I couldn't sleep. So I kept waking up all the time. Mm. 
and I was so thirsty when I woke up and I was going, what the mm. hell has this got to do with the air? Like, I just couldn't understand it. Yeah. And and I never really, you know, even though we were there for almost a month, I never really, four weeks or whatever, I never really got a chance to get used to it. So, you know, yeah. I can't help you there. What are the yeah. dangers of it, Julia? Do you have to, you know, in terms of, do you have to bring water purification tablets? What are you going to eat when you're up there? Uh, don't need to bring anything for the water. Uh, and the company I go with, they will provide all the food. Uh, so they will... Uh, they have like chefs with them that will cook all, all the food. So we just need to bring like snacks and things like that. Uh, I would say that the, the height, like the, the altitude is the biggest risk. Like if you get altitude sickness, mm. uh, I've actually been lucky enough to get medication for that. Uh, we had the company I'm going with have a collaboration with like an, a doctor who's uh, specialized in adventure medication. So I had a call adventure with him. medication. My word, that sounds exciting. <laughs> Uh, no, I had a call with him because I also have asthma. Yeah. I've been a little bit worried about that uh, going to that height. What did he have uh, to say about that? Is that a risk factor? No, he said that that was like, it doesn't have to affect anything. Uh, but I will be like recommended to take my asthma medication every day just so I know as well that it's it's the, it's the like the altitude is not my, my asthma that affects yeah. it. Uh, and then also the medication for the altitude sickness as well. Some have some tablets I will take every day. Um, yeah. So then you shouldn't get any symptoms from the altitude uh, other than it will still be hard, obviously, but you won't get like the, because uh, you can get nausea or headaches or like mm. you said, trouble sleeping and things like that. So that medication pretty much takes away all of those symptoms. Is it a very expensive undertaking to, you know, you find this company um, consultations with with adventurous uh, drug doctors, uh, flights <laughs> to Tanzania, obviously, I can't imagine you're probably not just going there for eight days, right? You're going to spend a little bit of time there before and afterwards. Yeah, is it exactly. expensive to do this? It is pretty expensive. Yes, I, uh, I will go a day before uh, just to have some time to relax. And then I'm also staying uh, for a three day safari after. Oh, wow. um, so I have a bit of, of time. It's a, uh, I mean, it's probably about 50,000 just for the trip, uh, for like the flights and yeah. the all the expenses to the, the company and things like that. And then that's not included in uh, like all the gear I've had to buy for yeah. it. Uh, but it's also like the gear I'm going to use that anyway. So it's not, yeah. it's not it a, a lot of small land as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, and actually, the, the company I'm going with is also very good. You can rent like the sleeping bag and uh, a big duvet jacket and things like that that you need uh, that you probably won't use ever again because it's very specific to when you're in alt or on altitude and like having doing ex expeditions like this. Uh, so that's really good, both for like environmental reasons, but also they're super expensive to buy. Mm. Uh, so if you just if you're gonna pay I don't know fifteen thousand for a duvet jacket that you they're going to use once. You would never get me out of it. I'd be wearing it in the fucking <laughs> summer here in Sweden if I paid 15 grand for a jacket, you know? Um, oh, no. I'm a very warm person. So <laughs> yeah, this is the other thing. It's like, you know, I can't, you know, most of the time I can't have uh, any of that kind of thing. I can't even wear sort of long sleeves most of the time, you know? But um, yeah. it, is a, it really is a sort of a trip of a lifetime, though, isn't it? So, I mean, you yeah. know, the expense, I mean, it's great. We're, we're lucky to be in a position where we can afford to do things like that. Yeah. But it's because if you're to go on a holiday to, you know, Marbella with you know, Emma Ridge or whatever, it's not going to cost you 50,000, but you could easily blow mm -hmm. 20 or 30,000 on that, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Is this, is this, the first of many or is it the one to beat them all for you 
Uh, I hope it's the first of many. I uh, I did go to Kebnekaise, the highest mountain in Sweden, last year. Uh, so this is the but this is the definitely the highest mountain I've ever been to. Uh, I I have more I want to go. Like I want to go to Machu Picchu and the Atlas Mountains, and so I have a few places I want to go after this. You didn't happen to bump into anybody from Luleå GAA up on Kebnekaise when you're up there that Sunday afternoon? No, I didn't. No. Yeah, did you hear about I that story? I stuck on Jersey though. I wore it on top of Kebnekaise. Good girl yourself. Well, you got to the top, which the lads from Lulio didn't. Mind you, they did get a helicopter trip down, but uh, we won't remind them about that. I don't think they'd like to be reminded That's of that. cheating. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they had to go one better than us on that front. Julia, yeah. what is it with just this, in Swedish, the verb is wandering, which I suppose you could call wandering, yeah. which is a lovely sort of, you know, translation of it. But what, where does the Swedish love of, of just, you know, going up a mountain, going out into a forest and just walking, you know, where does that come from? Oh. Because I know, like, you know, your sister and Carl and the kids, they're forever doing that. Every time I see a picture of them on Instagram, they're sitting there having hot chocolate in a bun at the top of some mountain or deep in some forest where no human being has been for a thousand years mm -hmm. kind of thing, you know? So is it something you learned to do growing up with your parents and small animals? Yeah, I think so. And I think a lot of it comes from, you know, the Alamanseretten that we have in Sweden as well. Like, you can roam free in the forest. And, like, you can even put up a tent for a night, basically, wherever you want. And I think that's really inviting people to go out and explore nature. And like a lot of people do mushroom picking in this in the, the autumn or berries now in the spring and the summer. And it just you're actually allowed to take that much advantage of nature and appreciate it. Because I, I mean, in a lot of other countries, you couldn't do that, that there would be someone's property. Mm. But here it's kind of seen that you know, the forest and nature, it's everyone's and everyone should have access to it. Yeah, that's Almen's Svetan that you mentioned there, just for mm -hmm. the, the uninitiated, right? There's a, there's a public right of access to everything in nature. And it also, you know, your farm or anything, like it's open as well to people. They can pitch a tent on your little bit of land as long as it's not within sight of your dwelling, right? So if you want to get out and about this summer, you can pitch a tent pretty much anywhere. Now, you have to show respect to nature. You can't go around, you know, throwing your tato wrappers and you know your, your cans of beer or whatever after you, you know you have to keep everything tidy and that but it is it's a magnificent sense of freedom by being able to get out there winter and summer you know so you can ski across these things in, in the winter and you can get out there in the summer as well and um, you mentioned that this is not climbing like climbing mount everest climbing it's more walking up a very very big mountain you know it's <laughs> Do you have any sort of desire? I was kind of expecting you to be hanging off, you know, one of those climbing walls in Hammerby Hayden or somewhere like that. Yeah. You know? do, do, have you ever done that kind of climbing? Would you be interested in that kind of thing? Uh, with the, like when you go up, the way I went up to Kebnekaise, so there's two different routes you can take. And mm -hmm. the one I went, you do a go by a Via Ferrata uh, up the mountain. So like when you're, you have a harness around you and then you're, like you, you clip into like a wire that's um, put in the mountain. Yeah. So we did do that. Uh, I I like that. I like I, now when I look back at it, I was like, that was fine. It wasn't that bad. But I know when I was there in the moment, I thought it was pretty scary. Shit. Uh, yeah, but it's like also, you, I mean, you you are secure, but it's everything just goes against your nature. Like you're supposed to be the the way you're most secure in some places are literally like holding onto a rope and pushing yourself off the mountain because that's that's when your feet are against the mountain wall and you will be secure. Yeah. But that goes against everything you want to do. Like your whole body just wants to go towards the mountain. Hug the, hug the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's where you're going to fall because then you get gravity. You will be like straight down 
the yeah. same length of mountains you would fall. And I think that just getting that around your head around that, it is, it's because like your whole body is like, no, don't do it, don't do it. And you're just leaning back into yeah. nothing, basically. Uh, but it's, I thought it was very, I would definitely want to do it again. I don't see, like right now, I don't have any wish to go, you know, climb Mount Everest or anything like that. But I would, I mean, I definitely want to go up Kebnekaise again and do that. Um, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying never, but I think I'm more of a walking, hiking person than climbing. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're out and about now, going up Hammerby back in the evening, you know, when you're doing your training now for Kevin McIsaac, for Kilimanjaro, mm -hmm. uh, do, do you listen to podcasts or audiobooks or do you just, you know, one of the things that's great about being out and wandering in nature is being with your own thoughts. And one of the terrible things about being out wandering in nature is also being with your own thoughts. <laughs> Are you comfortable in your own skin when you're out doing this? Or do you need, I just have to have a distraction because otherwise I'll just talk myself into a fucking knot. Uh, when I go to Hammerback in, I definitely listen to podcasts or audiobooks because it's just so repetitive and so boring. Yeah. Uh, but I did a solo hike uh, two years ago in Jemtlandsriangen in the Swedish mountains. And then I didn't do anything. Then I would just, with my own thoughts, uh, I really like that. I, I'm an introvert. I really like being on my own and like doing things uh, like that. So I don't mind. Uh, I think it's very nice just being, especially being out in the woods. Like, it's just so relaxing to me. And I feel like, it's going to sound like cliche, but I feel like my mind can just wander off because it's it has space that it yeah. doesn't have in the city. Like, I can leave work on a Friday night and really get the feeling that I need to go out in the forest this weekend just yeah. for an, an hour or two, but at least do something where I'm not in the city. Yeah. Is that something that you've grown into as, as an adult or were you always like that? Because in Smallland, obviously, you know, you're you're from the countryside, basically. Right? Yeah. I know the cities and towns there, I get all that. You'd seen buses before you got here mm -hmm. and that, you know. But was that something that, you know, because I know Maria, my wife lived right on the edge of a forest and she said that, like, you know, her childhood was basically playing in the forest and, you know, she was delighted if somebody was there, but she was also equally delighted just playing her own. Mm -hmm. Is that, you know, what that sort of rural upbringing is like? Um. Yes and no. I would say because I'm from I'm I'm still from a little like village. Uh so I didn't grow didn't grow up like right outside in the forest, but it's I think it's grown on me a lot more since I moved to Stockholm. I feel like I I need that. When I was younger, I didn't really get it, I think. Yeah. Uh, I didn't feel, you know, you don't feel the need, you just see, oh, you know, I want to be with my friends in in town and I want to do these kind of things. You just take the I think the forest and the nature for granted. Hmm. a lot and now when I don't have it like right outside my door I feel it a lot more like actually I, I want to be out in nature and I want to do be there and I need to be there it does seem to be a very Swedish thing because like, you know, we're getting to the time of the year now where there's a long stretch in the evenings and people are going to their summer houses. And, you know, there was that joke about the people in Finland and social distancing, you know, just saying 1.5 meters yeah. apart and they were going, well, why so close? You know, and there's a yeah. lot of Swedish people like yourself who like that sense of isolation. Could you ever see yourself with like, you know, a little summer stuga where you go and just sit there for six weeks and fucking don't talk to anybody? Oh, absolutely. That's what my dream. <laughs> Especially having it like up north where you could go out in the mountains and you know see reindeers and that's yeah that's definitely my dream to have mm. that I think because I'm I really like living in Stockholm and I love being in the city but I want to have that opportunity and that's also why I love Stockholm because you have nature so close yeah. like I live in Naka and I have uh, the, the nature reserve like 20 minutes walk from my apartment 
it's it's fantastic. Like we live on the other side of the city, right by Yalvathelted, and you yeah. have the same thing. You have ur- well, you call them urban farms, you know, but it's just mm. like a, a, a what do they call it? I can't even remember what they're called, but they have animals and ducks and all sorts mm. of stuff. It's just there in the middle of, of nowhere. Yeah. Um, if we get back to where we started on the sporting conversation, when you have climbed this literal and metaphorical mountain, <laughs> will we be seeing you in August in a Stockholm Gales jersey? Would you reckon? Uh, I don't know if I will play, but I will definitely be there. That is absolutely not the answer I was looking for. You, <laughs> we're gonna have to go with that again. <laughs> so, is this is this the retirement speech that we're getting here? Is it? Uh, might be, might be. Do I don't you know. Miss I, it? I I do miss it. I do. Uh, especially I miss all the girls and like just hanging, meeting everyone every week, and hmm. uh, you know uh, the social part of it. I do miss the game as well, but. Right now, I just had other things to focus on that I want to put my time on. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we'll see. I'm not saying no, but uh, right now I don't uh, see me playing this year. Mm. It was it, it was fairly obvious. When we went over to Helsinki there a few weeks ago, I'm sure Emma Ridge was telling you, we got the boat over and we played all day and then we got the boat back. <laughs> and there was the same thing. Like, that's when I missed you the first time. I was going, okay, this is the sort of thing that would usually be, Julia be right in the middle of this yeah. alongside Ridger and with that bag of cans kind of thing. And then you weren't there. It's going, okay, I have to find out where you went there. But I do think that, you know, like, I don't want to let you go. I don't want to see you go. And I do think that the idea of getting everybody back just for one last night with the gang, mm-hmm. right? So Saturday in August, when the Stockholm tournament comes around, yourself, Speedy Fanlund, Emma Ridge, if Anna Rangord is in town, bring her as mm-hmm. well. See who else, Kathy Barry, I think is living in France at the moment to bring her back. Yeah. Is that something that might entice you out of this temporary retirement like Zlatan Ibrahimovic? Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll be there any day. Like, I'll be the first one in real stems if that happens. I promise you. Fantastic. Well, listen, in the meantime, what date are you heading off up that mountain? Uh, I'm go- I'm leaving on the 29th of June. Uh, okay. And then we start climbing on the 2nd of June, I think. Yeah, early morning, 2nd of June. 2nd of July. Oh, July. Yeah, sorry. Super. I, I actually, I know your mom and dad as well. They're lovely, down-to-earth people, the nicest people in the world. What did yeah. they say when you told them you were going to be doing this in your summer holidays? Well, from the beginning, my dad was actually coming with me. But Holy then, shit. That doesn't surprise yeah. me one bit. Yeah, but then when I booked it, he he was like, oh, I don't want to plan it so far in, a, in advance. I just want to do it, like, on a whim kind of thing. And I'm just like, rock well, up that's and climb the mountain. Yeah, I'm like, that's not what you do with a trip like this. But, yeah. Uh, my mom, I think she's been nervous since 2018 that I <laughs> about me going. Yeah. Uh, she's still like, I don't think she will sleep for a week when I'm there. Honestly, do you not think so? No. Yeah, she will be very, very nervous. And I think it's, I'm counting on it not being any reception there, but I don't know. Uh, so I don't know if we, I will be able to contact them during the time I'm on the mountain. So that is also, I think, a little bit that she doesn't she don't know if she will know what's happening yeah that's the thing i think it's a really good thing for you like i said to be able to be alone with your thoughts and to, mm. and to chill out up there but for your poor mother holy smokes not knowing where you are until you get back down yeah. again you know god oh, that's gonna be yeah, I'm, I'm very much like that person and i like i can admit i don't call my parents enough because i'm very much like i'm very independent and I'm, i don't really think about that oh maybe other people wondering what i'm doing you know i know i'm fine so i don't yeah. need to call them if i need something like i'll tell you <laughs> yeah exactly 
Brilliant. Well, Julia, we wish you the very, very best of luck. And as soon as you're back down off the mountain, I'd imagine you're probably going to have to go to small land and hang out with your mother and father yeah. for a week or two, your, your vacation yeah. as well. But as soon as you get back, uh, we'll contact you again, get you back on the podcast to find out what the experience was like. Or if you do have coverage there, you know, we can always, I'd be happy to talk to you at the very top of Kilimanjaro. You know, that would be a big thing yeah. for me. Let's face it, I'm not going to make it up there myself, so I might have to live it through you. But for now, well, Julia... I, think the, I will make it any, uh, as well, so we'll see. Oh, oh, you'll make it, believe you me. I've seen you play football. If you if you could have scored that goal in the last minute against Malmo, you could do anything there. Uh, so, yeah, look after yourself and take care, and we'll get you back on the podcast very, very soon indeed. I will. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Malmo just need a simple point here. That leaves Stockholm leading a goal now, and hope is quickly starting to run out for the team from the capital. 17! Aiden down with a ball forward. They need a goal. Nothing else will do now. And Jessica McKenna is going in there to that goal. She goes straight forward. Looking for somebody to pass the ball to. She'll know that she needs a goal. Finds Julia Shelton. Julia Shelton has to bait this ball. And she buries it in the back of the net. Julia Shelton on the last minute, last second, last gas goal for the Stockholm Gales. But it comes out. Cathy Barry gets onto it. That tension here is unreal as the ball goes back up the field again. Stockholm will be happy enough to keep it up there. Turns inside. So you're going to have to get back there. And there goes the final whistle and the Stockholm Gales win the final by the slimmest of margins. If my calculations are correct. If my calculations are correct. They won it by a single point in the end. Julia Shelton got a goal in the first half. She got a goal in the second half. And in the end, she'd saved her team here on home turf. Oh, Jesus, lads. The memories. That day, back on August the 31st, I think it was, in 2019, Julia Shelson doing her thing for the Stockholm Gales. And what an amazing finish to that game it was. It was just crackers altogether. Uh, hugely exciting. They beat Malmo by a point in the final and winning that final meant that they won the Scandinavian Championship and we actually broadcast those games live on YouTube that day. I had the big video camera out and uh, I was testing a the thing there and it's something that I hope we'll get a chance to do again in the future because um, there was loads of people back home watching it. Uh, I don't know if Julia's mum and dad down in Smallland were watching it but I know that uh, there was people watching it in Galway and there was people watching it in Cavan and there was people watching it all over the place and uh, yeah so those videos are up on YouTube on my YouTube channel if I remember it which I probably won't I'll stick the uh, the link to YouTube in the in the comments or in the show notes for this week and you can have a look at that there's like two hours of football there so it would be great if we were able to to broadcast these things live a little bit more both for ourselves here in Sweden but also for people that we know around the world who can uh, check in and see those finals and I'm just delighted that that moment that great moment for Julia Shelson was uh, immortalised on YouTube live for the world to see and it's got quite a few views as well which is ma- magnificent I'd say most of those views are probably me it has to be said because it really was a tremendous occasion um, let this be the week because as you'll see again this is another enormously long podcast right but for once it's not actually me talking the whole time so let this be the week that you become a subscriber on Patreon right uh, again it just it helps me keep everything going it helps me be able to give it the time and the dedication as I'm talking to you now it's only a few hours before this episode comes out and uh, I just, you know, I've been, I really want to bring you these stories. I really want to continue to bring you these stories. But in order to do so, uh, we have to keep the coffers ticking over just a little bit. So if you can go to patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm and make a contribution there, like for 50 crowns a month, 
uh, like I think I think it's actually forty five crowns a month because of the currency conversions, right? Which is not even twelve crowns an episode, right? That's ridiculous, right? You can't even get a packet of crisps or a bar of chocolate in this country for that. And I think that the podcast is probably worth a packet of crisps or a bar of chocolate every week. Now, please don't send me crisps or chocolate. I'm fucking fat enough already sitting around here making these podcasts, right? But please go on to Patreon instead, patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm. Uh, for 45 crowns a month and you know it's it's a small thing for you as a listener to be able to contribute but if enough people do it it makes it so much easier for me to keep this going on if you can't do that go to swish one two three two four two four one six six and uh throw a few bob there there's a few of the lads actually some of them who you will see on that gaelic football video on youtube and they basically went in and they swished me like 500 crowns for the year great idea lads that's fucking perfect that's super that's almost as good as patreon so if you can do that as well that's brilliant and if you want to advertise our sponsor as our good friends at Veer pub do every month they're there every month martin is there by the way he's looking for staff at the moment so if you're any use of a bartender or you know anybody who's any use of a bartender if you have the gift of the gab if you can stand there and, and entertain uh, the irish people and pull a decent point of guinness then go to martin hessian veerstrom's and gamla stan tell him the irish and sweden podcast sent you and that you're looking for a little bit of work and i'm sure he'll look after you because he's looking for people at the moment he's had some wonderful people there angus and all the erasmus students who are actually leaving joe o'neill who you heard a little while ago talking about not drinking alcohol uh, was working there as well but there's a, a changing of the guard now and Martin's looking for people so if you can get down there or if you know anybody or if your son or your daughter is of age and they want to work there send it down to Martin and tell them the Irish and Sweden podcast sent you uh, but for other advertising and sponsorship for this podcast, Irish and Sweden podcast at gmail.com, that'll get me or hit me up on LinkedIn or social media or stop me in Veerstrums or stop me going along the street and we'll sort something out. Now, uh, over the last couple of years of the pandemic, I'm sure you've been inundated with people on Facebook and with people on Instagram and with people on Twitter asking you what the hell Sweden is doing. We're not going to rate back over the coals, but one man, uh, an Irishman who was very involved in the whole thing is Keith Begg. Keith was kind of disturbed when he saw how things were going, both with the Swedish pandemic strategy, but also how the media dealt with it, right? And in a way, I have to agree with him because there seems to be an awful lot of consensus and media should never really be about consensus. It should be about finding a balance. It should be about putting forward both sides of the argument informing people and that didn't really happen so he set up an organization called media watchdog sweden and got absolutely fucking lashed for it right every media house in the country and i shouldn't be laughing as i'm saying that because it was a terrible time for him and his husband uh, they all turned on him now keith left the country briefly for a few months in 2021 and i was speaking to him the other day and he's left the country completely so this morning i got him on the zoom because i wanted to go back over the time of the pandemic now we don't think of it we're all vaccinated we're going out to our summer house Granada Lund is putting on concerts again and indeed we can sit in beer stums and we can sit in the other Irish pubs around Stockholm and around Fagans and Malmö and do our thing again so there's a risk that we're going to forget all this and not learn the lessons so I decided I'd sit down with Keith this morning and just get his take on what it was to happen to him what happened to Sweden and what if any lessons have been learned from the pandemic were a couple of years ago living the idyllic Swedish life I think you were living somewhere along the green line there out the north side of the city and then the coronavirus pandemic struck now I didn't hear much from you in the beginning but all of a sudden you started to react to how it was being covered in the media and you sort of shot to fame through that what was it about the whole thing that sort of got you uh, that turned you towards online activism towards telling people what it was that you were seeing 
Yeah, great question, Philip. I'd say I shot to infamy more than um, being <laughs> famous. Um, I just think I back in uh, March, April 2020, when Denmark and its Nordic neighbours started to uh, invoke the precautionary principle, there was just so many strange things coming out in the media and the government and the Swedish Public Health Authority. So I think one thing that stood out, there was a banner from the uh, MSB, which I think are involved in, you know, uh, protection of Swedish society. And the banner read, um, if if I have COVID and uh, people in my house are not showing symptoms, is it okay to go to work or school? And the answer to that was yes. And uh, the weekend, there was a huge concert called Melody Festival and, you know, the qualifications for uh, Sweden to get to the Eurovision. Yeah. And there was, I don't know, maybe 15,000, I don't have the exact figures. And this is at a time uh, when Denmark had cancelled its own uh, festival. And I just kind of, after that then, it just became very, very concerning. And one of the major points was that I believe there was about 120,000 Swedes had come back from the Alps. And Anders Tegnell, Sweden's state epidemiologist, felt, oh, there was no point in testing them. Um, it would be costly. It would be too costly and the second equation was that they actually hadn't prepared so hadn't ordered enough tests so I said this is absolutely incredible and following on from that the media was just pouring uh, like ad nauseum what I would have uh, said was just propaganda misinformation and because I come from Ireland um, you know I used to check their news every day and also BBC and CNN so I felt there was something radically wrong so we set up this small ragtag group called Media Watchdogs of Sweden to actually challenge and counteract what we perceived as being uh, propaganda uh, misinformation and quite frankly lies at times. Um, and how did that, you mentioned the Media Watchdogs of Sweden thing, it started up and it was basically an online thing. Did you start with Facebook, with Twitter, contacting journalists? How did you go towards, how did you do that work, so to speak? Basically, we started with a Facebook group and literally, I would say we we kind of have the refugees from other groups um, and we were constantly being vilified and smeared and threatened. And I was doxxed. I had all my information published on a <clears throat> on a forum. So we decided to create a safe space because there were <clears throat> was a significant minority who were really, really upset and concerned about what was transpiring. So we set up this group. It was a private group. Swedish media had vilified us that we were this kind of um, clandestine group out to destabilize the Swedish state. But it literally became a kind of forum for support, but also for action. So we would write to European MEPs, just say like the Irish or the Belgian MEPs, in relation to <coughs> Sweden's publication of statistics, which were quite uh, false. So, for instance, uh, Sweden would publish, or the Swedish authorities, the the health service at uh, the FHM would say, oh, Sweden has one of the lowest uh, virus rates during the summer. So countries like Ireland and Belgium opened up their doors uh, to Swedish travellers based on these statistics, which are Sweden had one of the lowest testing rates in the OECD. So we were constantly, it was like putting out fires uh, that were just popping up the whole time. And we just said, we have to inform 
other countries about what is transpiring in Sweden. And that ranged from everything from the uh, from invoking the herd immunity strategy to forcing parents to send their kids to school, uh, unprotected schools, even if they were in a risk group or face daily fines per child. And also um, they risk child protected services being called on them. And again, well published, uh, the, the involuntary euthanization of thousands of elderly uh, people with a shot of morphine because the care homes were completely devoid of oxygen and low paid workers were denied PPE. Um, we have reports of some of some workers there, they were actually using sanitary pads as masks to try and protect uh, themselves and their patients going to work. And uh, they were on low pay, zero contracts. So they had to go to work if they were sick because social welfare didn't provide and provide any financial aid to them if they were sick. So it just started to blow off by uh, the end of April, the end of May, you could see that there was real serious human rights violations uh, involved in the Swedish strategy and an elitist strategy as well. Um, that was, uh, in the case of the old people there, with, with people who were given sort of palliative care rather than restorative care. So, you know, an old person with dementia gets COVID and they go, you know what, let's just make things as comfortable as possible for them. And basically people died of that. And I think the king, the former prime minister, Stefan Levin and Tegnell himself have come out and they said that they did wrong there, that they didn't do enough to protect the elderly. But when you're pointing out these things, Keith, because if I'm living in a democracy and you're pointing these things out, you know, I'll go back to the Boston Globe point to get the abuses of the Catholic Church, I'd be kind of tempted to sit up and go, hang on a second, what's that chap saying? What reaction did you get when you put these things in the Facebook group, when you contacted MEPs and when you started to, to circulate this information to people? Were they delighted to hear that the Swedish strategy was being uh, criticised or did they just push back on you? Yeah, great question. But first of all, I would just like to say in relation to the elderly, many of their, their what we would say death sentences were handed down over the telephone without mm. a medical um, expert seeing the patient, nor were the relatives informed of the palliative care. So basically, we got a huge backlash. So Sferio Radio, which is a state funded radio in February 2021, contacted me with a list of questions that you would expect from a totalitarian state. So they range from everything about destabilizing um, the Swedish image abroad, because the Swedish image is everything uh, for, the, for the government, and even it trickles down um, to the people. We were also, uh, the question was, could your uh, activism be seen as inciting um, violence in um, Sweden? So it was just absolutely startling, Philip, because you know, I quickly realized in Sweden that the the political, uh, if you criticize the political state, you're criticizing Swedish culture. It's not separated because I think there, there, there was such a high trust and there still is in the Swedish state that absolutely there was so little room for criticism. There is a very narrow opinion corridor and there's a lot of tone policing. So instead of being kind of uh, recognized as a... Uh, as an advocacy group actually challenging the state, the opposite happened and totalitarian actions were actually uh, 
you know, inflicted on us and many others by uh, state media, by um, the Swedish Public Health Authority. You know, I mean, one of the most concerning things was that they published, we were on the front pages of several media outlets where they published our photos and our names um, with this is how uh, the Swedish strategy is criticised. So, um, yeah, it was very, very concerning. Um, how did that make you feel, Keith? Because, you know, you go from being a concerned private citizen, putting together these things, these reports that you've heard, uh, you know, lonely paid staff having to go to work when they're sick, not having PPE. And then all of a sudden you're on the front page of broadsheets. You have the public service broadcaster contacting you for comment uh, about, you know, inciting violence to do with the strategy. How does that make you or how did that make you personally feel? Well, I'll tell you, I've been back in Ireland for two weeks and I'm absolutely amazed. I feel I'm back in an open democracy because the slightest political infringement is absolutely analysed and criticised by uh, a very uh, critical and open media, a scathing opposition, but also the court of public opinion. So there's so many checks and balances. I could not believe it because you would read in all the statistics like Transparency International, uh, Freedom of the Press Index by Reporters Without Borders that Sweden is always in the top five. So it made me feel, it kind of made me feel very frustrated. How could such a country like Sweden gaslight um, in relation to um, its kind of liberal prowess. I think it was very, very um, disconcerting for me. So I started to dig deeper and deeper. And, you know, for instance, like um, there's a law in Sweden going back to the 1970s where the civil servants and the political uh, governance system is immune from prosecution for malfeasance, criminal negligence and incompetence. And only recently, I think it was a, a month or two ago, there was a motion to overturn that. And of course, it was defeated and it was defeated by the incumbent government. So, you know, so there is no, there's absolutely no consequences or responsibility. And that for me is so frustrating because, you know, I took an open democracy, living in an open democracy for granted. I've worked for many years um, campaigning against totalitarian states for rule of law, LGBT rights, women's rights, etc. So, you know, I had to come back to Ireland to appreciate that democracy can never be taken for granted. And in Sweden, it is really eroded and there is such huge democratic deficits but the Swedish population the majority there is some uh, people who are who oppose it they're living in an exceptionalist bubble where um, they've grown up almost thinking that Sweden is the best country in the world so criticism is seen as an attack on Swedish identity and culture. Um, where does that come from? Because in a crisis, what often tends to happen is the trust for the state increases. We want to be protected. We want to know that somebody somewhere is doing the right thing, that they have the resources. Right. And that's it's not, you know, it's not only Sweden that thinks that way. There's pretty much every state. And then there's also this thing of Sweden being a consensus society where, you know, yourself, you sit in a meeting and nine of 10 people are in agreement. Yes. Nothing happens until the 10th person is convinced. Do you think that's why, you know, uh, they brook no dissent. They didn't want some fella coming from Ireland saying, hang on a second, look at this. Or was there something else behind it? 
that's a, a really interesting question. I would also say it's a very conformist society that nobody wants to stand out. And if you do stand out, you're quickly marginalised or sent to the sidelines. And I also have Swedish citizenship, but of course, um, you know, I'm Irish, you know, and just naturalised in Sweden. I also feel, and it's just a kind of theory of mine and a theory that has been banded around, though. I think Sweden has, you know, I think it's 200 years. It hasn't had uh, conflict, wars or major crises where its Nordic neighbours like Finland were invaded by Russia. Uh, the Nazis invaded Denmark and Norway. So there was a collective solidarity in crises. So I would say basically after World War II, Sweden's economy developed, you know, as Europe was rebuilding, it was totally destroyed after World War II. So Sweden's economy absolutely blossomed and supplied uh, raw materials. And, you know, it set the... Um, it set the, the foundations for the welfare state. But then other countries like Belgium, Germany, the Netherlands caught up pretty quickly. So the, uh, the state started uh, to kind of suffer a little bit economically. So I would say there's that mentality when you're looked after by the state from cradle to grave. Maybe you could compare it to the former Soviet states, um, you know, that you didn't have to worry about childcare, about, uh, you know, what you would do when you were retired, elderly or um, sick. So I really think that um, almost that that kind of covered up a bit of a Potemkin village illusion of Sweden, that the people were quite content to kind of go along, um, you know, with what the government said, because generally speaking, up until the 80s, early 90s, they were looked after, you know, and I think that um, psychology still pervades very much today. Our state looks after us. So why would they do anything wrong? Why would they lie to the people? They're elected representatives. So I think it's a combination of lack of experience with, with conflict uh, within their own borders. And absolutely, it's a little... Uh, you know, I have been absolutely torn to shreds for using the word brainwashing. But, you know, I have a Swedish friend who told me that his seven-year-old child at school was, told, was taught which are the good political parties in Sweden and which are the bad ones. So it's already setting uh, in motion um, what the youth should think um, in relation to the governance system, if you know what I mean. Uh, when did the, the threats start, Keith? As I said, we were a fair, like we were really, really unknown in Sweden. So the threat started after Sveria Radio aired um, aired a programme in February 2021 about MIWAS, and they also tried to tie it into a, another group, a scientific group. So we had, look, I got threats, anti-Semitic threats, um, many, many Irish uh, kind of uh, stereotypical kind of threats. And, you know, they were OK. I was doxxed, you know, as I said, details put up um, you know, to thousands of people. So this is his number, this is his uh, address. But as you know, in Sweden, it I would say it's a stalker's paradise because it's very easy to find your information, um, you know, I think due, due to freedom of information laws. But then after that, I started to get... Uh, I got my first letter was calling me a treacherous um, bitch and that we have uh, our eye on you. Um, my phone started ringing every half an hour uh, for a couple of days and you'd pick it up and it sounded like um, 
an answering machine. So I've no proof of, of where that was coming from. But, you know, some of our members, uh, one girl in particular got 80 death threats and also threats to her children and many, many others got threats. And it created just such a feeling of unease. And, you know, maybe people think it's paranoid, but you just didn't know if a car pulled up beside you, if a a person walk very quickly beside you. It's just human nature. You just, uh, you were on tender hooks for so on so many occasions, and also many in our group um, uh, also felt like that. So I wouldn't be surprised. You know, uh, it's hard to say, and I wouldn't put a label on it. That maybe several of us have PTSD. I suffered a lot of uh, nightmares. Uh, really, really. Um, bad flashbacks etc so it was just the threats kept coming but you know they weren't just threats from you know there were threats from ordinary people but the media you know publishing our names it was just I've never seen a media landscape outside of authoritarian states that were was doing everything to protect its Swedish image and literally vilifying people through photos names um what we were doing totally twisting uh, twisting the work that we were doing, uh, you know, especially our advocacy and contacting people abroad to damage the uh, Swedish image, when in fact we were contacting MEPs with facts and statistics. And as you know, writing using the pen is the oldest form of advocacy. Um, so yeah, it was just very, very strange, but it was also very, very sinister. Did you have any allies in the media? Were there any journalists in the group, any columnists who could go into the big newspapers or onto Australia's radio and say, look, at actually, these guys are, are doing decent work? Or was pretty much everyone against you? No, to be fair, there were a few. I'm, I'm not sure whether I can name them here, but they were um, pretty amazing. And there was one journalist who wrote that this is one of the most shocking um, signals of anti-democracy that she has seen um, from Swedish media. And high up experts actually came out in our support, uh, which was really, really encouraging and said the actions and the tactics being used by Swedish media and uh, the experts who have dominated Swedish media was akin to like DDR, I, uh, maybe that's the Swedish, or GDR, the, the former Eastern Ger East Germany, Stasi tactics. So we did have some support, but it was very, very much in the minority. Um, you left Sweden on a couple of occasions. Uh, have you have you left Sweden completely now, Keith? Oh yeah, absolutely, completely. Um, I left in February. I was just February twenty, maybe it was early March, uh, twenty twenty one. I was just exhausted, and I remember my parents seeing me, <clears throat> and they just couldn't believe it. They said, "You know, Keith, what has happened to you?" So I left um, Sweden for a couple of months, and then I moved to a small Tuscan village in um, Italy. And uh, I was working for a Spanish PR firm and that was absolute bliss. And it really, really helped me to recover. And my husband and my cat are in Sweden and it's been very, very difficult for them, but I just cannot move back there. So I just decided, what am I going to do? I felt I was a little bit of a nomad. Um, you know, that my life has been kind of turned upside down. Um, 
so I just decided, yes, I'm moving back to Ireland. I'm moving back to a place where I feel comfortable, where I'm not home police, where literally I'm just so amazed at how direct people are and how they say what they feel, you know. And, um, you know, it's just been... Uh, for me, pure joy. and But it also has given me the realisation that you can never take democracy for granted. And the system we have in Ireland, you know, via referendum for constitutional change, um, a very, very open media. And I had to laugh that Sweden comes higher. I think Ireland's number seven in freedom of uh, the freedom of the press index. And uh, excuse me, Reporters Without Borders has ranked um, Sweden number three. But guess who is one of their donors? It's uh, the state-funded Swedish uh, International Development Aid Agency. Now, I'm not making any accusations, but a lot of these rating agencies base their um, findings on reports that are sent from the national governments. So I don't know if you're familiar, for instance, uh, Anna Ekstrom, the Minister of Education, and the, the Ministry of Education, they fiddled our, uh, the PISA, the OECD PISA education um, statistics to give Sweden a higher rating. So I'm very, very cynical, but um, Sweden has thrived on these rating indexes where they come out the top five or the top 10. But if you dig a bit deeper, you really have to ask, are these rating agencies really doing their work? And are they automatically assuming that the Nordic nations that have a, an amazing reputation all over the world, they're becoming very lazy about investigating them for transparency, for corruption, for freedom of the press. Um. In a lot of the, the communications, the discussion, I don't think I was ever a member of the, the MIWAS Facebook group. I, I may have been in there. I don't use Facebook a whole lot. But some of the terms that you would have used, and we've had them on this podcast, brainwashing was one, involuntary euthanasia, death sentence. Can you understand how people in Sweden would go, hang on a second, they're quite provocative words, Keith. No, not at all, because and these words, I think, would be very standard in many other open democracies. And if you look at Andy Slavitt, who was a chief advisor to Biden, he referred to Tag now in using the word Nazi. So I would never go that far. But I did make some comparisons to uh, the involuntary euthanization of uh, the elderly in relation to the T4 program that was invoked in Germany and Austria, or Germany between uh, 1933 and 1941, where just say, for instance, the useless eaters, uh, as was the phrase coined, um, they were uh, they were euthanized and whatever. And, you know, I'm sorry, it's very, very contentious, but, you know, Sweden has not faced its past and its eugenics past. I mean, transsexuals were uh, had to be sterilized in Sweden up until 2013. They had the reproductive rights taken away from them before they could transition. Um, up until 1973, 63,000 plus mainly women were sterilized under a racial purity uh, program, which was um, uh, which was which was published all over the world in the New York Times, in the Guardian, and then in the fifties, uh, um, the, the the mentally uh, disabled were used in cavity experiments. Um, 
to test uh, they were fed sweets and sugar to test uh, you know would they rot their teeth and I know this is very contentious but the problem in Sweden is they have not faced up to our history like in Ireland we're looking uh, you know uh, like all the scandals are coming out relating to the Catholic Church, which are horrific, you know, and there's tribunals set up and there's, in some cases, compensation offered. Now, I know in some of the Swedish cases, compensation was offered, but, you know, in Sweden, the tone policing and the narrow opinion corridor means, like, what is it you can say? And I found after a while, everything I said was contentious. And, you know, we would provide facts on social media. I mean, irrefutable facts. And a lot of the Swedes would just reply, oh, you're a tinfoil hat. They would never even read the article. That that level of hyper-nationalism and exceptionalism, I've never experienced. And I've lived in about eight countries um, you know, so, yeah, maybe it was provocative, but by Swedish standards, it was provocative. But but again, you really have to watch what you say and how you say it in Sweden. So I think in terms of Ireland, no, I think it would have been just very, very uh, mainstream. Um, we seem to have all moved on from the pandemic. I don't think, as Jerry Adams once said about the IRA, I don't think COVID has gone away, you know, to paraphrase him, but we seem to have moved on. There has been a, the Corona Commission of Inquiry here, which has been very critical of the way the government handled things. The National Audit Office came out in the past week and said that stocks of PPE were terrible and that the government and the local regions were to blame for that. Do you see... You know, anybody taking any sort of accountability, any sort of responsibility for what happened during the pandemic here? Or is the Swedish strategy being celebrated in Sweden as a great victory for common sense? Yes, it is, because they're only being fed Swedish news. And if you look at the Corona Commission, they had two interim scathing reports. And the final report was uh, a little bit more diplomatic. But Lena Hallengren, the Minister of State and the Health Minister, blatantly lied to the commission to, to scupper their research. Um, they were looking for uh, meeting notes uh, from uh, 149 meetings and she denied their existence. And they were actually uh, leaked by a secretary. So she blatantly lied about it. Um, and there's no consequences. She's still in power. I mean, if that happened in Ireland, I remember a minister uh, was dismissed or maybe he... Um, he hand like he handed in his notice because he was caught at a, a dinner, a golfing dinner um, during um, the lockdown. So there's absolutely no accountability. And recently you've seen that the, the, the media, uh, Lena Hallengren herself, um, the Swedish Public Health Authority came out announcing that uh, Anders Tegnell had got a top job in the, the World Health Organization. This was complete false news and it transpires that basically um, uh, the, the minister, to, or I think it was one minister and the government and somebody within the WHO had tried to influence them to give Anders Tegnell um, a top job. But they went out all over the media. They sneakily changed the press release without announcing or, or issuing a new press release that they had made a blatant uh, mistake, which I don't believe it was a mistake. Uh, it was a calculated move. And, you know, we're still in a situation where under 12s uh, under 12 children are not recommended to be vaccinated and uh, when 12 to 18 year olds were uh, recommended to be vaccinated Sweden was the last in the EU. Um, you sort of 
finished with Sweden, but can you ever see yourself? I mean, as you say, your husband is here, your cat is here. Is is this country a sort of a closed chapter for you now, or can you ever see yourself moving back here again? Do you know what? I would love to say yes. I would. I, I don't ever want to close the door on anything. But the elections are coming up um, uh, this year. And, you know, there isn't one political party, I think, that would deserve uh, a vote. And, you know, in Sweden, it's really, really um, horrific to see that there is so little difference. The pandemic has revealed so little ideological differences between the left and the extreme right so for me there needs to be a total political change accountability and responsibility for the government has to be changed that law that exempts them from prosecution um i think it was an olaf palma inspired law maybe in 19 1973 four or five i don't remember the exact year it's all about accountability and responsibility and sweden needs much more uh, watchdogs. And it actually baffles me. The word ombudsman or ombudsperson, let's call it. Um, uh, now, that's a Swedish word. So, you know, when I grew up in Ireland, I had this um, like almost kind of magical image of Sweden, but the reality is so, so different. And, you know, I felt I never fully fitted in there. I felt I was more um, existing, ra- existing and surviving rather than than living because I just felt, you know, and you start to believe and many um, of the my foreign friends who were part of the group, you almost feel that there's something wrong with you, <clears throat> that maybe it's not Sweden, it's you. And it's only when you go to other countries that you realise, no, you're not, you're not bloody insane. Um, you know, what you're thinking is absolutely right, because I grew up in Ireland and even back in the 70s and 80s, as conservative as it was back then, you still had a right to speak um, freely. And so my answer to this is right now, no, I don't see any changes on the horizon for the political system in Sweden. And you know what's the saddest thing about a political system and a governance system can only survive as long as the people endorse their behaviour. And I don't see that changing anytime soon in the future. It's a sad note to leave it on, Keith, but um, I do hope that something changes in the future where you'll feel yourself welcome back in Sweden. And when you do, should we sit down over a cup of coffee and maybe we'll rake over these coals again. But for now, Keith Begg, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you, Philip. There you go, none other than Dr. Alban there singing the praises of one Anders Tegnell in his song Hello Sverige, Lusna på Tegnell. Hello Sweden, listen to Tegnell saying that he's stable and rational. And uh, after hearing what Keith Begg had to say there, you'd have to wonder how stable and rational the whole thing was. And it's a shame in a way because um, these are times when, as I was saying uh, to Keith there, that like you know, in times of crisis, we kind of all have to pull together. We have to find one thing and stick to it. But there still has to be room for dissent. There still has to be room for discussion. And there certainly has to be room for accountability and for responsibility. Uh, and that's one of those things that unfortunately is getting buried. And every time there's a lesson to be learned we kind of go as society we go 
nah, let's not do that. Let's just keep going on. Let's not, you know, the expression dole stemling, a bad atmosphere in Swedish legs. Let's, let's not indulge of any of that. We'll just get on with it, which is a little bit sad. Listen, I've kept you for far too long this week. Yeah, but, you know, hopefully you're out in your summer house cutting the grass and you're delighted with these slightly longer podcasts. But they're just they're creeping up and up and up. I'm going to start to describe myself as a cross between Joe Rogan and fucking turf soon enough if these keep getting uh, much longer. But I'll let you go for this week. Uh, get in touch if there's anything one of the things i was thinking of was like you know what the market is going to be like if you like for podcasts in july i'm going to be away in england working so i might take a little bit of a break over the summer there but it all depends on what you want to do and what you want to hear all the podcasts won't be as long as this might be only one guest that kind of thing but uh, let me know what it is you want to hear hit me up on social media give me the feedback and together because this is a community podcast it's not just me talking to you listening there's a conversation between us and i want to hear from you as well so yeah, get in touch if you've got anything. Instagram, you know where to find it at Irish and Sweden Pod. Um, you know there's all the social media channels out there. Just ring me up, knock on me door, come round, well, put the kettle on. No bother, you know. But in the meantime, take care of yourselves, take care of one another, and it'll be another episode around nah, about next Monday. Say good luck. <laughs>